0: How did we get into the modern world? This question is quite significant, and it roots back into the things we've already been through. We've discussed the scientific revolution and the beginning of an era of change and and dramatic knowledge, and with that, coming along and following on its heels the Age of Enlightenment, the period in which people begin to think about new ideas, new concepts. From those springboard a whole new set of unique concepts concepts of freedom and liberty and equality that are reframed in new and exciting ways, which brings a challenge to the status quo, to the monarchies of Europe. England has already experienced a transformation. Now the new nation of America is born out of these very ideas, this very need for revolution. And we saw in France a nation struggle to rise with mixed results. Now we're entering into a period where things are going to change quite drastically revolutions are going to happen. In some ways, they're going to pick up speed. And yet something else is going on. An age of technological advancement. An era uh, in which the whole entire surface of society is going to be refaced with new ideas, new philosophies, new ways of thinking, new science. And some of these changes, while welcome, will also be quite frightening. Welcome to the period of isms. Buckle up. And uh, get ready, I'm taking you from the steam engine all the way to the fields of World War I. I can think of nothing else than this machine, James Watt. It was a Sunday evening and James Watt was out on a walk through the Glasgow Greens in Scotland. What the day was like we cannot say it must have been pleasant because there's no mention of the weather the truth is even if it hadn't been so pleasant james watt may not have even noticed his mind was preoccupied in the way it often happens when we have something very pressing that we're working through he was trying to solve something that was a lifelong endeavor and he was just on the cusp of discovering his preoccupation was how do you make steam move through this new engine faster and cheaper? Then the moment struck, like a eureka moment. Suddenly, he knew how to complete his lifelong project. It's kind of odd. It was actually in a moment of relaxation, Watt discovered an idea that had been in the process for nearly two centuries. Watt had just unlocked an invention that would dramatically alter human history in a way that was greater than than any since the agricultural revolution in prehistory. The Industrial Revolution, the making of the modern world, has just begun. The story of the steam engine in the technological age doesn't really begin in the 1800s, the 19th century, or even for that matter, going back into the Renaissance. It begins far, far, far earlier. It starts all the way back in the Hellenistic period uh, in Alexandria during the first century. There was an engineer there whose name was Heron. Uh, sometimes he's called hero, that's what I'm going to call him, but you his official name, I suppose, is probably hero he made he made a lot of novel inventions, um, basically, he was more or less a toy maker, and um wealthy patrons who had nothing better to spend their money on would buy his novel inventions. One of these uh, was something that he had created due to the fact that he was fascinated by steam. It was a toy. There was a cauldron attached to the bottom of the toy, and it would emit steam. And of course, in turn, that would, that would, that would start to spin uh, the ball on the top. Now, that might not seem like something exciting for you in terms of watching, but, you know, it's probably the next best thing, you know, to the telly. So it worked out, worked out for him pretty well, uh, but nothing came of it. It was basically just a parlor trick little later on, somebody invents something in the sp- during the Renaissance period called the Magdeburg Spheres, and they're, again, another amusing trick, but nothing comes of it. Huron had incidentally discovered some aspects, the fringes around air pressure, but he, never, he was never aware of it. And when the Renaissance happened, his discoveries helped to reignite those questions about vacuums and air pressure and steam power. Boyle and Hook, who we've met in previous episodes, figured it out because unlike Hero, they were not blindly bound to Aristotle's kind of strange and obscure concepts about vacuums. And that played a critical role in their ability to figure this process out. Now, Hook and Boyle knew there had to be a way to harness the power of the vacuum, but it wasn't Hook or Boyle who really brought this to fruition. It was Thomas Newcomen's engine. That would set the ball rolling. What Hook and Boyle did, especially Hook, was Hooke believed that inventions should not be just for fun or for amusement. He believed they should have some type of purpose, and that idea, that that concept, deeply roots itself into English society as it transforms its technological uh, its technological power uh, through making useful inventions. So Newcomen is going to basically get that ball rolling. Now, who is Thomas Newcomen? Well. I wish I could answer that question for you. In some ways, Newcomen is kind of a mystery wrapped in an enigma. There's not a ton known about his life. He was probably, seems to be, he was an iron worker. And he hailed from a Baptist family, and being from a Baptist family at the time was not something uh, that was necessarily pleasant. He was born in 1664, there was still some religious oppression going on, and the Baptists were a group in England that were not incredibly welcome. So Newcomen was never allowed to have a university education because of his religious background. However, the Royal Society in England had fostered something unaware to them. It wasn't just fostering the upper levels of, of society, uh, science in the upper levels of society, but they were starting to, the lower levels of society, the middle class, the lower class, people were becoming interested in these concepts. And so while he didn't have a university education, it was the Royal Society's work that inspired Newcomen and his ideas. Also, they wanted to take science and common sense and solve basic problems that were uh, that, uh, that would help them to advance uh, commercially. So in the Midlands, England, where Newcomen was from, uh, there, uh, there is and was a lot of coal mines. And still today, I think there's a number of coal mines in the Midlands area. And so the problem was that the mines would sometimes fill with water and it would make it a hazardous condition for miners harnessing the, the concept of the vacuum then in 1712, what he was able to do was he was able to create a pump engine run by steam, which could pull water out of the mines. And this idea caught on like wildfire. It was kind of expensive, actually, to run it because it ran on coal. And uh, and so if you were if you were a, a miner, I mean, it was costing you a bit of coal to run this in order to get the water out of the mine. But with all that being said, uh, it was still the first process in the step of a steam-powered world. The piston moved up by air pressure, uh, and then the chamber would fill with steam, pushing that piston up. And then, of course, uh, then they would, it would spray in cold water, and the air pressure would drop, and the piston would fall. And this, would, this, this was a, a genius idea, but of course it wasn't quite as efficient as it was going to be, at least not yet. So, if you look at the type of rig, and I encourage you, if you're if you are my student, you should look at the document that I put up online. You can watch it work. If you are not my student, go take a look for uh for Thomas Newcomen steam engine, and you'll see exactly what what we're looking at. So Thomas Newcomen steam engine looks a little bit like an oil rig. If you've ever been to West Texas, where I was born, uh, you'll see those those these types of rigs everywhere. Well, this type of rig seems simple to us, but of course, in eighteenth century England, it was kind of an amazing contraption. Within three years there were over a hundred of these that dotted the English landscape and the boiler below would heat up then and release steam into the cylinder, which would push the arm up. The side container that when spraying cold water that would make the air pressure nearly collapse, this would of course create a vacuum. The attachment to the far left would then pull water out of the ground. The problem was that while it worked all right, it caused issues because it wasn't very fast. All the heating and cooling took place in the same cylinder, and that meant that things moved very slowly and used a lot of fuel. So what happened to newcomer's engine? It may have, come from, may have come of nothing, okay? It may have went nowhere if it hadn't been for the mind of James Watt and the mind and wallet of a young Michael Bolton. So James Watt came from Scotland. As a young man, he goes to London to try to become a part of that that group of inventors. The problem is there's a lot of guilds in London. They're very similar to labor unions. Um, He's not incredibly young when he goes to London. He doesn't want to spend 10 years working as an apprentice. He has an idea. He knows what he wants to do, and he wants to get in and get to work. But he's not very welcome. So he partners first with John Roebuck. And um, Roebuck helps him. And funds him for two years as he really kind of figures out this, this steam engine. And, uh, and then after, of course, this is all completed, what Watt does is he hooks up with Michael Bolton. And in their factory, they begin making and processing these steam engines. So Watt is widely recognized as one of the great minds of history. There's even a unit of measurement named after him. His really, he had a really keen mind and he continues to produce kind of a steady flow of invention until the time of his death in 1819. Watt was born in 1736. So, in addition to uh, the steam engine, there's also the rotary engine and an early type of coffee machine, which can be credited to Watt's inventions as well. So, what happened with, with Watt is that he basically took a lot of Newcomen's ideas. But what he did was he added on to them by adding this separate condenser, and this cut the time and the cost of coal down dramatically. So this condenser then would work so that the cold water would be condensed in a different area, and it would it would it kept the it kept the machine working a lot faster. To make it simple, okay. Um, he also added a wheel later on, which would then turn. If you put it on its side, it's the basis for the steam engine train. Of course, you know Watt doesn't know this yet. But this is the greatest innovation again since the agricultural revolution at the beginning of human history, and this is going to profoundly affect society. If you're looking at at your slides, you can actually see an image of Watt's steam engine and what it looked like. Again, remarkable, remarkable piece of technology for the time. And you might be asking, why England? To me, it seems really interesting to ask the question why the Industrial Revolution began and had its great move stride forward in the nation of England. For example, the population of China was much greater than that of England. Why, not, why wasn't this invented in China? And they also had a higher, not only a higher number of people, but they had, been advanced, they had been advanced in science longer than Westerners had. Why not there? Why not in France or Spain or India? The Industrial Revolution seems, at least in its very beginning, to be extremely localized in England and then, of course, very quickly in America. Why is that so? Well, there are a couple things. First, England had a huge agricultural revolution, okay, their own little personal agricultural revolution, which meant that there's a surplus of food and the cost of food was driven down. Uh, There was a new horse-drawn seedbed technology like this... Uh, the way to get seeds in the ground that made farming easier. It was less intensive, which means that less people were needed to do the same amount of work. And uh, this brings up two very important changes in the English way of life. First, as I told you before, surpluses drive down the cost of a product, meant food was cheaper, and if food is cheaper, that means there's more money freed up to buy other manufactured goods. Secondly, with an increase in food production... Also, oftentimes comes an increase in population, and that happens during the second half of the century. There's a huge population explosion. This means that there are more workers uh, to produce more things. So this is going to, again, drive the English economy. Uh, there's There's several other reasons which are very important as well. Um, Britain's nat- Britain has a lot of natural resources, and in terms of coal and iron, uh, they have a very high amount. Now, so did China, okay? So, to be fair, across the board, China also has a significant amount of natural resources. But it so happened that these things all coupled together, I think, give a reason why England was able to soar. One of the lesser-known reasons, though, is I think probably the most interesting. It was looking back at the law of primogeniture, which uh, made the upper-class values kind of start to permeate through English society. Now, if you remember, when we talked about primogenitor, that means that if you're the oldest son in a family, you get, every, you get everything when your parent dies. Okay, so if you're the older son, your dad has a large estate, you get the entire estate. But what happens to a person that has, say, six or seven other sons, which wasn't uncommon, and in fact is more common than you find in other areas of the world? Well, these guys become small claims hold, small claim holders, they kind of moved down, if you will, in society and in the up from the upper class into the middle class, and and that ideas also permeate sometimes into the lower class. But they brought these same values that the nobility had with them when they came down. Those values were hard work, deferred gratification, literacy, and the ability to handle disputes peacefully. These four things are a treasure trove not only for England's England's economic if you will, renaissance, and also they are a treasure trove for any society. Any business is built upon these, these four concepts. These are powerful concepts. Not only that, not only businesses, but uh, there's been studies that show when these values are in a nation, it actually makes a nation more valuable, it causes its economic situation to, to flourish. And lastly, and this also cannot be overstated as well, lastly, it was Britain's patent laws. The patent laws were, were key. So John Locke talked a lot about property rights. And out of these concepts of property rights, uh, he and an, a lawyer named Koch, uh, whose last name was Koch, they had, they had worked um, not together, but the work that they did kind of accumulated together for the idea of creating laws that protected people's ideas. This allows people to get ahead. These patent laws would be in place, the person would make money off of it, and then later this would fall into general usage, which means other people could then take the idea and begin using it. This is powerful. This is what we call useful knowledge. So this fueled uh, competition allowing England to be enriched by useful knowledge. So Adam Smith and his economic concept called capitalism, the idea that people are looking out uh, for their own self-interest, and by doing that, they're ultimately helping everyone else that begins to enrich the nation of England as a, on a whole. So once the race began, England's daughter across the water begins to join this revolution as well. In August of 1787, after arguing our constitution into being, they adjourned one afternoon and head down to the Delaware to see this new boat that had oars moved by steam. Its captain's name was John Fitch. He is not the first steamboat creator, but you know he's one of the first, he's one of the first I should say, He's among this very beginning. So delegates decided it was relevant that they create this strong patent system like England because they wanted to encourage knowledge and discovery. And from that point, this dizzying flurry of ideas flooded both continents and spread rapidly through other parts of Europe. The invention of the English, though, outpaced everyone uh, because of this lack of strong government control. For example, when we talked about why didn't the revolution begin in China, that's another aspect. The reason the revolution didn't happen in China because the emperor monopolized inventiveness and therefore hampered industry, whereas the English crown allowed uh, the English to have that freedom to create uh, much, more, uh, much more decentralized, and so that's a key aspect of this. Now, America was just in time because in 1790, the first textile factory, like the one the English uh, had a... First textile factory, like the ones in England, sorry, was established in Rhode Island. It was the discovery of the cotton gin. By the way, gin is short for engine, that started to transform cotton and textile industry in 1794. A veteran of the Revolutionary War, his name was Eli Whitney. You guys have all heard that name, I'm sure. Discovered a way to rapidly separate cotton from its seeds. This allows vast amounts of cotton to be grown and prepared for textile industry. Before the technology took root, American slavery was probably on its way to to extinction. The problem is that slavery just was. It didn't pay like it used to and they were becoming an over a surplus of slaves which mean that the only thing you can do at that point is to start to free them uh, but in this particular case um as it's on its way to extinction it took it uh, it took uh this invention that will definitely transform uh transform society it took 10 hours of crippling backbreaking labor to produce a unit of cotton Whitney's new machine was able to accomplish this in the space of an hour. It was the invention of the cotton gin that really made slavery pay, and unfortunately would continue this until, it's, until the war that takes place 70 years later. Whitney, of course, went on to become a consummate fundraiser for the government, advancing the manufactured base of the country and becoming one of the fathers of mass production in the United States. Now, Wh- Whitney's, Whitney's cotton gin was a welcome addition to the world of textile, about 30 years before its invention, the clothing industry of England grew rapidly due to the spinning jenny, jenny also short for engine. This allowed workers to spin eight threads at one time for a unit of cotton. These early machines invented by um, James Hargreaves were, were run by human hand, okay, so you had to spin this particular spinning jenny. But Um, later on, they start to be run by water power. They get a little bigger. They're called the spinning mule, and they could crank out a lot of clothing. The machines were initially run out of people's homes. They had little cottage industries, but as, of course, demand increased, the size and complexities the machines did, it became best to start housing these in factories. And these factories are a lot like Michael Bolton's, who run a big factory in Soho. In 1787... Uh, Britain imported 22 million pounds of cotton. By the year of 1840, 366 million pounds of cotton was being imported into England. So the cotton gin was definitely making its mark, the spinning jenny and all these technologies were working together to create a whole new industry. If you're you're taking a look, uh, those of you who have your document, you can see the spinning jenny and the spinning mule and kind of get an idea about how they worked. Now, it was the invention, though, of rocket to be distinguished from the raccoon on the Guardians of the Galaxy, by the way. It was the invention of a rocket that changed everything. In 1804, it was critical that Richard, uh, Richard uh, Trevithick found a more profound way to use Patent 913. That was the patent for Watt's engine. He created the first steam-powered locomotive. The problem was the railways that were set up were weak, and they couldn't withstand the kind of weight. And so there was all types of problems, little little ways that were set up. These early type of railroads were not built for that type of thing. They were just little cars, more or less, that were moving on these roads before, pulled by horses. So um, it's appropriate that the rails had to be put in motion. Now, the first locomotive was was actually pretty slow, too. It only went about five miles per hour, which means that, you know, we could have probably raced it and beat it, okay? Um, but it was the invention of rocket by George Stevenson and the creation of the new railways that changed the steam locomotive. It's an interesting story because the Liverpool Mercury was a paper paper at the time. It ran a contest of who could bring the best steam engine, and it paid what would be equivalent to $500,000 today. So it's a pretty good sum of money. When the smoke had cleared, it brought out all the crazies, by the way. You can imagine that. When the smoke had cleared, however, there were five contestants that remained. And here is my mad history headline. Of all the five contestants, only three of them were serious. One of them never made it to the starting line. But the other is the most magnificent thing I've ever seen. Okay, if you ha- if you can't see this, is called Cycloped. Okay, um, it's so bad, it's kind of awesome. So one of the contestants was Thomas Shaw, who was a physician and a lawyer who turned inventor. Should have stayed physician and lawyer, but we'll leave it at that. He concluded the best way to get horsepower was to actually have a horse present in the operation. He built a train car. It was basically a treadmill on the top. The horse was harnessed on and and, and hitched on, and the horse would run, and this would power the locomotive. It was an awful design, of course, but the creators of this machinery had political connections, which mean that he was allowed to compete anyway. He was on the board for the directory of the railway. Uh, the comic relief alone had to make it worth it, guys. I'm not even going to lie about it. Awesome. Uh, watching the poor horse happen to do a workout to move the train car had to be funny. This is 1829 when the rain, what they call the Rainhill Trials happened, but if there had been a Darwin Award, he definitely would have nailed it that year. Now, in 1830, Rocket won the prize that Rainhill Rain Trials um, trucking along at 16 miles per hour. In 20 years, this, this little engine would be able to do 50 miles per hour. And in the space of 10 years, there would be 2,000 miles of track in England. So the race for invention had begun, and the world is never going to be the same again. And here's my second mad history headline. Lincoln, the inventor. The 19th century would have been an unparalleled time of invention as inventors created extraordinary new ways of doing work, solving problems, and making things more efficient. Among those is none other than Mr. Abraham Lincoln, uh, when he operated a flatboat, he encountered dams and sandbars that oft sometimes had perilous consequences. He invented a boat that boat that had arms that would extend downward and inflate, making the raft more buoyant and allowing them to go over uh, dams and obstructions more easily. William Herndon commented that Lincoln worked with this model quite often and his belief it dramatically changed the navigational problems faced by barge. In 1849, Lincoln obtained a patent for his invention after running tests with a local engineer. He is the only president to have ever received a patent for an invention. He once said the patent system added the fuel of interest to the fire of genius. This spirit, of course, drives progress and innovation not only in America, but across the water in Europe. So while invention was moving at breakneck speed, new problems were percolating underneath the surface but are the long-lasting consequences still being felt today as, as we now today continue to have these large discussions about climate change? All right, so that's all I have for this particular episode. Uh, those of you who are my students have the document, go ahead and make sure you do your homework today, and we will talk, to, we will talk again about Darwin and Mendel and the coming of new science. Have a good one.